Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie. And I'm Mark, her dad. I'm a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. We're going to do every case that's in the 2000s up until today. It's a lot of cases. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it up into two episodes, but I'm going to release them both in the same week. Okay. So you guys are lucky. You'll get a little bonus episode. So I'll I'll release, obviously, this episode you're listening to now came out on Friday. So I'll release the, the episode following this probably on Wednesday. And then that'll be the end of the Highway of Tears. All righty then. Or at least our coverage of it. Right. Well, yeah, because it's still on. Some of the cases are still ongoing, right? Correct. So we have a few announcements before we start. Just wanted to say thank you to all of you who've reached out to us and told us that you're enjoying the podcast. It really like makes our day when we hear from you guys. Absolutely. Also, if you could please follow us on our social media accounts. Like I said before, that's where we post all our pictures and announcements and all that fun stuff. So we're at Can't Make This Shit Up Pod on Instagram. We're at CMTSU Pod on Twitter. We also have a Facebook group, which is Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast discussion group. And also you can always email us at Can't Make This Shit Up Pod at gmail.com. We also have a new way to submit questions and case suggestions. If you go onto our Instagram page, there's a link in our bio. That link will take you to a bunch of other links. And the top two are two separate forms, which you can enter case suggestions or listener questions. But if you're not on Instagram, you can always email us questions as well or, or case suggestions. The, the questions have been really fun. I ha- we have some more at the end of this episode. So I hope you guys are enjoying the questions as much as we are. Okay, so last week... We covered all the cases that took place on the Highway of Tears in the 1990s. So this week, for this episode, this Friday episode, we're going to be discussing all the cases from 2000 to 2010. So there are a lot of cases. Really? Yes. Our first case is the murder of Tracy Nadine Wolf. So Tracy was in the process of divorcing her husband, Gordon Darrell Wolf. And on July 5th, 2000, Tracy was working at a Harley Davidson dealership in Prince George. Apparently, she really loved motorcycles and she loved to ride. So the dealership was just off of Highway 16, which I'm sure you're not surprised to hear now. Not at all. When witnesses saw Tracy running across the lot towards the dealership, Tracy was chased across the lot by her estranged husband, who was holding a large caliber handgun and firing at Tracy as she ran. Oh, God, okay. Once inside the dealership, Tracy fell, and witnesses later testified that Gordon, her estranged husband, stepped on her back and cold-bloodedly shot her in the head. Wow, okay. Gordon then turned the gun on Tracy's new boyfriend, whose name was Mark Gillet. He happened to also work at the dealership. That's how they met. So he, once he had shot Tracy in the head, he turned the gun on Mark and he shot him in the stomach. Wow. So at that point, onlookers wrestled Gordon to the ground and they managed to get the gun away from him. Mark, the boyfriend, was rushed to the hospital and he actually survived his wounds. But unfortunately, Tracy did not. Assassinated. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Gordon was obviously arrested and was eventually sentenced to 25 years for first degree murder, 15 years for attempted murder of Mark, the boyfriend. And then one year, an additional year was added for contempt of court, which I tried to find out what that was about because it just makes me wonder, like, what did you do that you got a year for contempt of court? He probably yelled at the judge or something like that. You know, like you got to piss the judge off. They give you a year or they give you like a year and a day. You know, you're really especially like down here when they issue warrants, they like make it like the, let's say the warrants a thousand dollars. They say a thousand and one, that one is the indicator that they want them held and until the judge sees them. So that's pissing the judge off. So, well, and a year is a long time, you know? So I feel like it had to have been like, he had to have done something like pretty preposterous. Right. Yeah. Well, the sad part of this case is that 10 days prior to the shooting, Police reported that Tracy had inquired about a restraining order against Gordon, but had never actually filed one. Okay. Why? Um, that's a silly question. Only because she was killed in on that in that Harley Davidson, and it's on the Highway of Tears. Is she considered part of this? Yeah, okay. it's pretty much any any crime against women. Well, there's also a difference between like that's why I said there's a lot of speculation, kind of, and opinions. as to who should be included on the list and who shouldn't. Because like, for example, the e-panelist is only, I think like 18 people are on it. Right. Um, Which obviously there's like over 80. And at the end of all this, we'll talk about like what the criteria is for e-pana and like why certain people are on it and certain people aren't. But I've just personally included any death or missing person that included some sort of violence against uh, women. Okay. So this was one. All right. Our next case is the infuriating story of (laughs) three-year-old Savannah Hall. Oh, God. All right. Yeah, this one's not a fun one. Savannah was indigenous. She was a member of the Lake Babine Nation. Savannah was born on September 9th, 1997 in Prince George. Her mother, Karina Hall, was only 17 when Savannah was born and had had a very difficult upbringing. Karina had been in and out of foster homes her entire life. She had struggled with drug and alcohol addiction. At the time of Savannah's birth, Karina did not have a stable home and was bouncing around, staying at friends' and relatives' houses, kind of couch surfing. Savannah's father wasn't in the picture. He was never involved. He wasn't even present at the baby's birth. Mm. So... Because of Karina's struggle to stay clean throughout her pregnancy, the Ministry of Children and Family Development decided to monitor baby Savannah, although they did allow Karina to to maintain custody. Okay. So Karina claims that she remained sober following Savannah's birth and went she went permanently to live with her aunt, whose name was Vera Seymour, because the ministry would only allow the baby to stay in Karina's care if her aunt agreed to be Savannah's primary caregiver. Okay. In an interview with the Vancouver Sun, Karina said of her daughter, quote, Savannah made me happy. She was the best thing that ever happened to me. She was beautiful. Mm. Of caring for Savannah at the time, Karina said, quote, Savannah was eating food. She was sleeping good. I was the one who was doing everything. I was mothering for my child and it made me feel good. However, when Savannah was only one month old, Karina wanted to move out of her Aunt Vera's home in order to live with another aunt because she claimed there was a lot of fighting and kind of drunken debauchery going on in the home. 
And Karina didn't feel it was a safe environment for her and Savannah. Oh, wow. Okay. So Karina did the right thing. She went to the ministry and she requested permission to relocate with Savannah and she was denied. Mm, Um, Shortly after, Savannah was removed from Karina's care. Eventually, Karina found her own place to live and regained custody of Savannah. But unfortunately, due to poverty and ministry, there are ministry reports that claim that Karina was abusing alcohol during this time. But Karina denies that now. Right. Savannah was taken away and returned to Karina four times over the first year of her life. Wow. So finally, on September 28th, 1998, Savannah was made a permanent ward of the government and was placed in a foster home in Prince George. This was the home of Thomas and Patricia Keene. Okay who had been foster parents since 1988 and had won several awards for their care of children. Oh, okay. After being in the Keens' care for two years, on January 24th, 2001, the Keens called an ambulance after finding Savannah gurgling and gasping in her crib. Upon being admitted to the Vancouver Children's Hospital, Savannah fell into a coma. And two days later, on January 26th, 2001, at 5.50 p.m., Savannah Hall was pronounced dead. Wow, okay. In a judge of inquiry report, coroner Lisa Lapointe reported that there were unexplained bruises on Savannah's body. Her brain was swollen and she had a lacerated lip, which she stated was possibly a result of resuscitation efforts. So the lacerated lip may have just been from them doing CPR. Her body temperature, which was taken when paramedics arrived to revive her, was only 31.7 degrees, which was far below normal. Savannah's foster parents admitted that they had been tying down Savannah when she went to sleep in her crib. What? Yeah. They admitted that they had forced Savannah to sleep in a crib down in their windowless basement. They used a leather harness, which was typically used as a leash for toddlers. You know, those like toddler leashes that you see people use at like Disney World and stuff. Yeah, like with a retractable cable thing or whatever. Yeah, which ill. This one was made of leather, though, so. Okay. That was placed around her chest and shoulders and that the strap they would then tie to her crib to keep Savannah in place while she slept. The Keens admitted that they tied Savannah face down with only enough slack to turn over on her side. Jesus Christ. The Keens claimed the reason they did this was that Savannah was such a violent sleeper that they had to tie her down for fear that she may harm herself. (laughs) I don't know about that. We'll we'll get to it. Yeah. They also claimed that Savannah had been so violent that she had broken cribs previously. What? So to me, that's bullshit. The girl was only three years old. Let's say three years old. I, like I have a three year old now and she doesn't. First of all, it's it's odd to me that at three, she's even still sleeping in a crib. Right. But besides that, even if I had put my daughter in a crib, there's no way that she even if she tried her hardest could break that thing. Right. Yeah, that's doesn't make sense at all. Additionally, the Keens admitted that they had been sewing the ends of Savannah's sleepers shut so she could not put her hands through. What? Yeah, they claimed this was done to keep her from scratching. Okay, well, I mean. The Keens admitted that they had been doing this to Savannah for roughly six months since the spring of 1999. Wow. Insanely, the ministry had been aware of the Keens' habit of tying Savannah down while she slept. What? Yeah. They had been informed in August of 2000. A social worker had been directed to discuss it with a doctor in order to determine if it was indeed necessary or harmful, but the social worker failed to do so. Patricia Keene swears that social workers approved the use of the harness to tie Savannah down. 
that they told her it was okay for her to do it. I'm sure verbally, nothing in writing, right? Right. Yeah. That's just her claim that they told her that verbally. Right. Okay. (laughs) However, in a preliminary report written by former coroner Kathleen Stephanie, she stated that Keen was in fact directed to stop using the harness and was told it would be better to place a mattress on the floor and allow Savannah to sleep there so that there was less chance of harming herself. Yeah, because you can fall out. You're only falling a short distance to the to the ground. Right. Yeah. The report also claimed that Patricia Keen had sewn her sleepers shut to keep Savannah from playing with dirty diapers rather than to stop her from scratching as, as Patricia had claimed. Wow. However, during this time, Savannah attended a full-time child care program during the week at the Child Development Center in Prince George. When the staff there were interviewed, they claimed they had never witnessed Savannah act aggressively or violently. They claimed that she had tantrums normal of a child her age and that when they spoke to her calmly and rationally, she was easily calmed down. Wow. They did attest to the fact that Savannah was having difficulty sleeping and would often have nightmares and wake up. However, the staff stated that she was easily calmed when a staff member would sit with her or hold her or rock her back to sleep. They explicitly stated that restraints were not necessary to calm her. (laughs) Unreal. And these were award-winning foster parents, huh? Oh, yeah, (laughs) award-winning. Okay. In October of 2000, only three months before Savannah's death, her doctor reported that she only weighed 33.5 pounds, which was a large decrease in weight from her previous visits. Her weight while in the Keens care had dropped from the 75th percentile all the way down to the fifth percentile for her age. Wow. When confronted by doctors, Patricia Keen claimed Savannah ate regularly and never complained about being hungry. She claimed to not know why her weight was deteriorating and claimed that she believed it was the result of Savannah having fetal alcohol syndrome, which Savannah had never been diagnosed with. <laughs> Okay. To this day, Patricia Keen claims that she knows that she had fetal alcohol poison, uh, fetal yeah. alcohol syndrome. Hopefully, while she's sitting in jail. Um. Well, we'll get there. All right. <laughs> the CDC reported that while in their care, they were concerned with whether or not Savannah was getting the proper amount of food at home, because while in their care, Savannah would quote eat nonstop if permitted, and would stuff so much food in her mouth that she would gag in her panic to eat. That's a child who's starved and starving to death. Yeah, for sure. So there was also previous instances in which the Keens previous foster children had complained that that as a punishment, the Keens would withhold food from them. In the preliminary report, Kathleen Stephanie wrote, quote, investigation also revealed a disturbing pattern of children developing eating issues when they were with the Keene family home, but that these eating issues disappeared once the children were placed in different foster homes. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Both Savannah's biological mother, Karina, and and Karina's sister, Victoria Hall. So that would be Savannah's aunt. Okay. Both also claimed that they had been concerned that Savannah wasn't getting enough food. Victoria told the Vancouver Sun, quote, every time we went to visit her, we'd bring her McDonald's and she'd eat three or four Happy Meals. I was amazed she'd eat so much. She'd even eat all of the snacks that we brought after. Wow. Karina... And her family were also concerned about frequently seeing bruises all over Savannah's body during their visits. 
Karina and her family members spoke to social workers several times about having Savannah removed from the Keene's care. However, Savannah was not removed. And when Patricia Keene was confronted about these allegations following Savannah's death, she said, quote, they were all birthmarks. There were no bruises. Oh, my God. (laughs) She's claiming that the kid's mother was mistaking birthmarks for bruises. Like, don't you think that she would know if her kid had birthmarks? Yeah, birthmarks and bruises look a little different, too. So I'm just saying, you know. Yeah. Anybody that has a child or, well, hell, anybody who's ever had a bruise knows it's not a damn birthmark. Yeah, they don't even look alike. Right. I mean. November of 2000, two months prior to Savannah's death, another foster family filed a complaint about the Keens when a young boy was removed from the Keens' care and placed in their home. The couple claimed that the young boy had told them of the Keens' abusive treatment while he was in their care. However, this complaint was never investigated because the ministry claimed that because the boy had already been removed from the home, he was not in immediate danger. Yeah, but all the other kids in their care are. Right. Or future kids or. Yeah, basically, the ministry was like, oh, well, because this complaint was two months after or I'm sorry, two months before Savannah died. So imagine if they would investigated it. Savannah probably be alive. Yeah. Or even if they just removed everyone until they investigated it. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Put like a like a put them on just a timeout or something. So despite all of this, the coroner wrote in her report, quote, I classify this death undetermined and make no recommendations. So to this day, no charges have been filed, but the Keens were no longer allowed to be foster parents. Oh, imagine that. (laughs) But they were never charged with anything. It only took the death of a child to unreal. So the Keens continue to deny any allegations of abuse. Thomas Keene died in 2003 from cancer. Good fucking riddance. Karma. Bye. (laughs) However, Patricia Keene filed a lawsuit against the ministry for loss of income because she was no longer allowed to be a foster parent. Please tell me that shit was dismissed. She lost. All right. Thank God. And she wasted a lot of money on attorneys and, and lost. Good. Fucking crazy. Did they have children of their own? Yeah, they had two teenage daughters. What was their condition? Do you know? So there was never, they never have claimed any, that they were abused. But it's interesting because we'll talk about it in a minute, but they did do like a coroner's inquest later on because so many people were like up in arms that no one had ever been charged. Right. They interviewed the, the daughters and one claims that she never, because they're adults now. Right. One claimed that she never witnessed any abuse, that her parents were perfect. And the other daughter under oath basically said that she blocked everything out and has no recollection. (laughs) Okay. Which to me, that says either A, you saw some traumatic shit and that's why you can't remember. Or B, you can remember and just don't want to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one or the other for sure. So in October of 2007, a coroner's inquest was opened into Savannah's death. So that's what we were just talking about. But still, to this day, no one's ever been charged in her death. Oh, and probably never will be. Yeah. No, so that's unreal, but happens, happens a lot. So isn't that crazy? It is. It's, it happens everywhere. You know, like the, you know, you always hear about the stories of Department of Children and Families or whatever, you know, wherever they're, whatever they're called in, in, in different areas. But, you know, you hear these horrific tales of, the social workers not being overworked or not checking in time and, uh, you know, kids living in, in terrible conditions. And it's just it's bad across the board. So it's well, not in un- this case reminded me a lot of the one we covered last week of uh, Amanda. Hmm. Remember the four year old yeah. that was um, I mean, she wasn't in foster care, but no, but 
I mean, it happens. I mean, it happens. You know, young children are unfortunately they, you know, they're very easily victimized. You know, especially at that age, they can't talk, and you know, well, and even when they do, no one like listens. Right. So, just very, very fucking worlds of fucking cruel place. That's for sure. The next victim was Ada Elaine Brown, which I love the name Ada. I think that's like a fun. Yeah. So Ada was an indigenous woman. She was found in a motel room unresponsive on April 9th, 2001. How old was she? Ada was 41 years old at the time of her death. Okay. And within a few hours of finding her body, the police had already determined that Ada had died of natural causes before an autopsy or anything. (laughs) Okay. Weird, right? All right. Well, that's not the procedure, but okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, I mean, I would obviously just assume that that's not what you're supposed to do. The only only people that can determine cause of death are doctors if they're treating them for something that they expect them to die or, you know, the medical examiners or coroners. They have to do a, you know, medical investigation, so... So when her body was discovered, Ada was covered in bruises, including she had two black eyes. Okay. But yet they still said natural causes. It's like, huh? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, come on. At the time of Ada's death, she had been in a very abusive relationship and her family suspected that she had been beaten to death by, by her boyfriend. Both Ada's daughter and Ada's sister tried to get Ada help during this period, but were unsuccessful. Of her boyfriend... Ada's sister, Terry Brown, told CBC News, quote, he was known as a shady guy, the street guy, the drugs. He was really known to be mean to her, to beat her. She told my older sister a lot of this. Wow. She said it herself, quote, if I die, it's because of him. Months after Ada's death, the autopsy report declared that Ada had died of subdural hemorrhage. The Mm -hmm. autopsy also noted all of Ada's injuries, including the two black eyes. But nonetheless, her death was still classified as undetermined. What? Yeah. Wow. That's okay. Bullshit. Yeah. And I mean, well, you know, like, again, this is still in the Prince George area. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, speak ill of their you know, medical examiners or coroner's facilities or doctors or whatever, but you don't have, you don't sustain those type of injuries and say that it's either under, I mean, undetermined, you know, it would either be, they were attacked by somebody or in a, in a, some type of accident or fell downstairs, something, you know, like, well, let me ask you this, a subdural hemorrhage. Can you, a, that just doesn't occur naturally, right? Like that's no, like, no, you that's, have to have some sort of trauma. Yeah. It's like blunt force injury to the, like to the head or right. Like it doesn't necessarily come from someone beating you per se, but you'd have to have like like some sort of fall or like you could fall and hit your head or, you know, like get struck by something like, or, you know, like a falling object or, you know, something, but yeah, it doesn't just, it's not like it's a, like an aneurysm. Yeah. Like a tumor or something that just pops up. It's there's some type of trauma to the area, regardless of whether it's, you know, intentional or accidental or whatever, but, and there can be unexplained deaths or unidentified, you know, causes of death, but you still have to, like we, our homicide investigators, they still investigate them to see, like if the coroner says they're not sure, then they do blood tests and there's a lot more things that they need to do to try to make a determination. They might not know the final cause of death, but they can eliminate all criminality. Right. So it's not considered a homicide that would need to be prosecuted. And sometimes there are, right. It could just be like an accidental death. Correct. Like an unknown cause or, you know, they got exposed to something that they just can't detect, but there's no, you know, there's no criminality. There's no signs of, uh, you know, foul uh, play, foul play. Exactly. So, but in this case where she's full of bruises and black eyes and stuff, I mean, come on. In the days leading up to her death, Terry told CBC news that Ada had gone to the doctor complaining of severe headaches. 
However, according to Terry, Ada was directed to go home and take Tylenol. So the doctor like didn't really ex- do any sort of like intense examination. Yeah, I mean, if she didn't have any marks or bruising and she's just having, I mean, you would think that they would at least do some type of, you know, neurological type of testing. If, you know, you're complaining of headaches, at least determine if they're, you know, you suffer from migraines or some type of, you know, something that, you know, would be done. So again, I don't know how it is up there and, you know, in, in, in what their medical. The autopsy report claims that Ada had told that the doctor that she had went to about the headaches that she had told him that some of her bruises stemmed from a fight she'd gotten into downtown with another female. The autopsy report notes that there was an, quote, unsubstantiated history of assault five days prior to death. The autopsy also notes that this could have been the cause of the hemorrhage, but it was impossible to determine. I mean, that's, yeah, that's possible if she got into a fight with somebody at a bar or whatever. And then she just slowly bled out basically in the brain. Right, yeah. Yeah, she had like a brain bleed that the doctors didn't, you know, do a scan or an x-ray or an MRI or something and just told her, hey, go take Tylenol. You know, that that shit does happen. So, I mean, that is, I guess, a plausible reason, you know, but for still to to be with the black eyes and and you just have, you have physical evidence of something not being right. How do you not pursue it a little bit more? I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback, but it definitely suspicious to me. I definitely, you know, it would have been investigated like where I work (laughs) for sure. So. Well, Ada's family believes that her death was a direct result of being beaten by the boyfriend. So they think that when she went to the doctor, she didn't want to tell them that it was the boyfriend. So she made up this story of of right. their her getting in a fight. It's underreported for sure, as, as we've seen and as we've discussed a little bit, and, you know, and, and we'll continue. Um, unfortunately, it's a bad crime that, you know, a lot of people don't like. Call. It's become very taboo. prevalent now or yeah, it's a taboo, but I mean, it's gotten better. People have been more open about it. And there's been a lot of, you know, changes and reforms and stuff for domestic abuse and stuff like that, but it's still very underreported and, you know, it's very, it still happens quite a bit. So, you know. Yeah. So they, they believe that the boyfriend's responsible and they also believe that because she was indigenous, very little investigating was done by the police. They believe that that's the reason why the police were just kind of like, oh, another another indigenous girl dead, whatever. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the case, too. So and if she and she had a history of drugs and stuff like with the boyfriend or um, not that I found. No, the boyfriend was known to have like drug issues, but there was nothing that said that Ada did. OK, that would be that would probably be an aspect as well as that if she was a known, you know, drug user or she associated with those type of people not that it's correct or right but you know that i'm sure that probably played a role in them you know yeah, like prejudice. yeah so because that you know that certainly happens so the next victim was leah marie faulkner who was living in prince george during 2002 while she looked for work on february 11th 2002 Leah was reported missing by her family after she had asked her parents to babysit her one-year-old son and had never returned to pick him up. Her live-in boyfriend, whose name was Tyler Newdorf, told the family that she had never returned home. A month later, on March 6, 2002, the police received a phone call from a Surrey lawyer informing them where they could find Leah's body. So I was unable to find out how the lawyer came to have this information. Like, I don't know if the because we'll come to find out. As I'm sure you won't be surprised. The boyfriend did it. Okay. But I don't know if the like the boyfriend called the lawyer to like you know confess, or if it was like some sort of informant that wanted to give the tip oh. through through the attorney. Like I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess it could be either one of those. But I would think that if the if the boyfriend, the guy who actually did it, told the the uh, lawyer, there's that attorney client privilege. 
Okay. Yeah, but I think the lawyer was directed to t- tell the police by whoever his client was. Okay. Hmm. That would be interesting to know, but. Yeah, I couldn't find it, but all it said was that they were given the location of a, the body by an attorney. Okay. Hmm. So on March 6th, the police found Leah's body in Beaverly Creek near Westlake, and it was submerged under the ice. So where the attorney had told him the body was, it was there. Okay. A month later, on April 19th, Leah's boyfriend, Tyler Newdorf, was arrested for the murder. He confessed to police that after getting into an argument with Leah, he had choked her to the point of unconsciousness. And while unconscious, Leah had vomited and died by choking on it. Tyler was charged with second degree murder, but through a plea bargain, ended up pleading guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. On October 3rd, 2003, Tyler Newdorf was sentenced to seven years plus time served. That's all he got. Yeah, well, manslaughter. That's why. In 2007, which is the year I graduated high school, (laughs) Tyler was soon to be up for parole. So he had to complete a prison family violence program in preparation for his release. However, while in the program, Tyler made several startling confessions. He admitted to the program's counselors that the murder of Leah was not actually a heat of the moment killing that he had actually planned it because she had told him that she was going to report him to the police because several days prior to that, Tyler admitted that he had been abusing Leah's son and had on one occasion had beaten the the son so badly that he had broken the child's arm. The child was only one years old. Oh my God. So I guess once he broke the kid's arm, his girlfriend was like, I'm turning you in. Right. So in order to keep Leah quiet, Tyler murdered her. So he planned it. Fuck. Wow. He also admitted that the idea of killing Leah had, quote, excited him. And he confessed that the light sentence he received amused him and he laughed while telling counselors about it. According to the province, Tyler, quote, admitted he sexually intimidated, belittled and bullied Faulkner during their time together to the point where he had done a dry run some months previously. He put her in a stranglehold and considered killing her, but backed off. Wow. So he had, he had tried to kill her before and then thought better of it. He was practicing. Furthermore, Tyler admitted that had Leah's son been home during the time of the murder, he would have murdered the kid as well. Wow. Yeah, he, he's just like spilling his guts to these counselors. Like, what an idiot. And, and did they do something about that? Hopefully. So kind of. He also, that, but there's more stuff he admitted. He didn't oh. stop there. This kid's wow. like, first of all, I'm like, don't get me wrong, I'm glad you admitted all this. Diary of the mouth. He's like... <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm glad you admitted all this because, you know, obviously I want people to know, like, what a piece of shit you are. But what an idiot. Like, you're just literally, like, having diarrhea of the mouth, like, telling them all your innermost things. It's like, dude. Yeah, but maybe he feels because he got away with, you know, he got away with it. Maybe he was feeling, you know, he was getting that um, they can't catch me complex or, you know, like that kind of that God complex, like. You know, maybe he got that they can't catch me type of thing or they've already convicted me of this crime type of thing. And, you know, proud of himself. You yeah. Know, like, uh, these sick fuckers, they come, they, you know, they get crazy and, you know, <laughs> they start thinking things. And well, the other thing that he also admitted to is that he had planned to murder his parents as well. He claimed oh. while he was a teenager, he had snuck into his parents bedroom while they were sleeping with a shotgun. He pointed it at them and then changed his mind at the last moment. Oh, he's a sociopath. Yeah, like he's nuts. Yeah. Given all of these admissions, the parole board voted to detain Tyler past his release date. So as of 2007, when this happened, they had only voted to do that in 4% of cases. So it's like very rare. 
However, two years later, on October 1st, 2009, Tyler Newdorf was released from prison and he's a free man today. Fantastic. Yeah, this piece of shit's just walking around in Canada somewhere. Wow. What's his name? Tyler what? Newdorf. I'll try to remember that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, our Canadian listeners, if you uh, if you come into contact with Tyler, run. Yeah. Run away. Yeah, she's... So Leah's parents obviously feel let down by the system. They don't believe their daughter received the justice she deserved. Okay. Um, they now raise Leah's son, because remember, she had the one-year-old son. Yeah. And they've been very outspoken about Tyler's release. I bet. But, you know, um, once they're convicted of, you know, like he was convicted of manslaughter, you know, like those, the, the higher charges, they go away. Like they can't, you know, can't be retried for that exact same, even though, you know. Oh, I, I 100% believe he's going to reoffend at some point. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, I mean, he hopefully thought about when he was a teenager and killing his parents and then he tried to like he, he practiced on her before he actually did it. It's it's slowly like cooking in his brain. He's, you know, which I wonder what his parents thought when they heard that, because like, I'm sure that was the first time they knew that, obviously. Yeah, I don't know. That's that would be an interesting question to have answered. Like, did they leave him alone, like not have anything to do with them? Do they still welcome over, you know, come on over for, you know, Sunday dinner? Like, I know it's crazy. You know, because I would be like, no, no, thank you. Bye bye. I know. I'd be like, listen, like unconditional love and all. But like, I can't have you around. Like, how do I know you're Definitely not going to one day like, fly off the handle and kill me? <laughs> like, hey, mom, can I come home? I need to spend a night. No, I'm good. Yeah, like, I'm OK. Thanks. <laughs> Let me get you a hotel room or something. <laughs> yeah, the doors will be locked. We have we have cameras. Don't don't stop by unannounced. God, that's crazy. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. Like the, the thing of like the parents whose children have, com- you know, confessed murderers and, you know, like it's. Some of them still love them and other ones like, you know, totally dismiss them and, you know, like have nothing to do with them. And it's like, it's a tough, it's a tough thing, you know, like I know. You love your children, but when they lose their fucking mind or go crazy and start killing people, it's like, what do you do? <laughs> well, especially that guy, because he's just like an asshole. Like, it's one thing if like, you know, you kill somebody in the heat of the moment, you you legitimately have guilt after. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's you're still a murderer and that's right, right. like horrible. But there's a big difference between that and then this kid who's sitting there laughing about it. Right. And like no remorse, no nothing. Right. And confessing to counselors that yeah, there was planned and unreal. <laughs> so the next victim was 24 year old Nicole Hoare. And I know I know that, that that. Yes, I know that that's an interesting last name, but it's spelled H-O-A-R. OK. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of information about her case. Okay. So all that's known is Nicole was from Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. She's indigenous. I'm not even sure. Oh, okay. There was so little about this. I she could be, and I I don't know. Right. Okay. She worked as a tree planter, and was working in print in the Prince George area at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen on June 21st, 2002, at a okay. gas station located at 5952 Gothier Road or Gothier Road, which is off of Highway 16. It was reported that she was last seen talking to a white man who appeared to be in his 30s, who was driving an orange car. Nicole is on the e-panelist. She's on the e-panelist. Her case is still open. If anyone has any information on her case, the RCMP encourages you to call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. And you can leave an anonymous tip there as well. So that's literally all the information about it. Wow. Okay. Jesus. The next case is a weird one. 13-year-old Kayla Rose McKay was last seen alive on August 12, 2004 in Prince Rupert, British Columbia. Okay. 
Two days later, on April 14th, her body was found near Prince Rupert Harbor on George Hill's Way. Police have been tight-lipped on what they found and have released very little details. According to the podcast Taken, all police have stated publicly is that they are sure that Kayla, quote, was not murdered and did not commit suicide, but they, quote, aren't ruling out the possibility of criminal involvement. What? Yeah. Isn't that strange? She was not murdered. She was not murdered and did not commit suicide, but they still believe that there is a possibility of criminal involvement. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't get it. Criminal involvement, then she was murdered. Isn't that strange? Yeah, that's okay. Go ahead. I know somehow this is all going to tie in at the end. No, no, that's it. That's all we know. What? Okay. I don't see. I, my brain doesn't like it doesn't compute. Like, how can you make those statements and say, but say that there was criminal involvement? I, obviously, I'm sure that, that they know more than like the public. No, of course, does, but but you but don't it, make that. It just type doesn't of make sense. Like, you don't even try to like. You don't even make that statement to try to coax the killer out. Like, oh, it's not criminal, or it's you know she wasn't murdered, so I'm okay. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it doesn't make. I'm confused. You sure that's not like a typo or something? Well, and here's the thing. She was only 13 years old. So so basically they're implying, I guess, that she wasn't murdered and didn't commit suicide. So it was either some sort of accident Uh or she died of natural causes, which is like nearly impossible at 13 years old. Like, right. Unless right. Unless you have some type of, you know, medical issue, which you're going to be in the hospital or I don't know. Doesn't make sense for sure. So that's on the E panel. You said no, she's not. No. Oh, the other one, the right, the one before her, the very little information. Right. Okay. And all right. Well, so once again, though, the RCMP is encouraging if anyone has any information on her death to call Crime Stoppers at 1 800 222 8477. So they're looking for tips still. Right. Well, so, well, because they believe there's criminal involvement. Yeah. But how that works, I don't know. Uh, me either. That's, I have to ask somebody at work. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you find out some like other like information if you're not like, murder come, and you don't commit suicide how can there be criminal involvement yeah see if you can figure it out because if maybe come back to us with like a few options and we'll I'll be like okay okay I will, I, will. I will definitely look into that when i go back to work <laughs> so our with our next case there is also very little information again okay so all that's known is on july 29th 2004 71 year old helena jack was found badly beaten and burned to death in her garage in the 600th block of Highway 16. Okay. Evidence found in the garage led police to a hotel room in the area. The police found further evidence there and arrested a man named Vincent Sam for the murder. Sam was later convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Okay. So that's all that's known about it. Like he was like robbed her, he, whatever. He... Yeah, I don't even know what the motive was, nothing. Okay. Wow. All right. The next victim is 43-year-old Barbara Ann Joseph, who was indigenous and was last seen attending a party on September 4th, 2004 at the Naka Ozdali Reservation. Okay. I'm trying with the, with the pronunciations. I understand. The following day, on September 5th, Barbara's body was found inside a home on the lower road of the reservation. Her throat was slashed and her stomach was cut. A month later, in November of 2004, Barbara's cousin, Winchester Orlando Thomas, was arrested for Barbara's murder and charged with manslaughter. Winchester admitted that he and Barbara had been at a party that evening and had gotten into an argument. 
In a fit of rage, Winchester began choking Barbara before slitting her throat and then raping her. Following the rape, he used the knife to cut her stomach open from her right side all the way to her belly button. Barbara's official cause of death was determined to be asphyxia due to blood in the lungs. Oh. So the kicker of all this, Winchester was Barbara's cousin. Yeah. Okay. So he murdered and raped his cousin. His cousin. Truly some sick individuals in this world. So he was only sentenced to 12 years in prison. Yeah, I understand. I mean, I don't know, like, particulars of the case, but why they would charge a manslaughter if there's a sexual battery there and, a, you know, an intentional murder. Like, yeah, how, how can you drop it to just man? I mean, unless, like, the evidence was bad or they didn't have a lot of evidence or circumstantial evidence or, I mean, I don't, was he convicted or he took a plea? It did, I couldn't find that. It just, I just okay. found that he was sentenced to 12 years. So I don't know yeah. if he took a plea or. Wow. You would think just those two crimes alone, the murder and the sexual battery would be more for that. life or. Yeah. I mean, but again, I'm, you know, I don't know the evidence, don't know the case. So who knows but, you know, how good the case was or not. So I'm sure that played a part of it. So crazy, man. I don't know. Can't make this shit up. Sick. <laughs> it's crazy. Our next victim is 89 year old Margaret Nooski. Okay. Um, she was an elderly indigenous woman who was last seen on the afternoon of October 2nd, 2004. She was seen hitchhiking near Notley Road, the Notley Road turnoff on Highway 16. Margaret's family informed police that she suffered from dementia and had difficulty walking due to health issues. In the past, Margaret had been known to hitchhike to go to Prince George in order to play bingo and visit family members, which I love the fact that she played bingo. I just think that's like, the cutest well, why, why why is an 89 year old hitchhiking like well i think that they because of the, dementia or yeah I, I don't know if you know somebody was watching her and you know they turned around for a second and she left or what but they think it's right. like she has dementia and she like wandered off basically okay. in the weeks leading up to her disappearance margaret had wandered off before and had been found wandering around in brush near her home despite full helicopter and ground searches margaret was never found So I find that interesting because obviously if she, you know, really did have dementia and, you know, wandered off and maybe just like succumbed to the elements and stuff like that, you would think that her body would have at least been found. Yeah, I mean, you would think so. But is the area where she was like last seen or whatever, is it like a rural area or is it like forest? You know, like so pretty much all of Highway 16 is pretty rural. Okay. Like the area that the area that the Highway of Tears is like located in. So, I mean, maybe, you know, animals got to her wolves or. Yeah, that's true. You know, so that's always a possibility when you're out in those, um, you know, those like forested areas or, you know, heavily bushed areas and stuff. You have, you know, animals and predators and stuff that naturally and all kinds of animals like, you know, even like raccoons and shit like. Do they have raccoons in Canada? Is that a dumb question? I don't know. I would think that maybe they do, but I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, I'm down here and I know they like to take body parts off of scenes. So. Well, because, you know, like even some states don't have raccoons. So really? Yeah. Like there, I don't think that there, there's I never saw a raccoon when I lived in Vegas. Like okay. maybe it's too hot there for them. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm dumb. Maybe there are raccoons and watch Kim's going to like listen to this episode and be like, you dumb idiot. There are raccoons in Vegas. You <laughs> dumbass. I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if raccoons are everywhere. Or... I swear I'm smart, guys. I swear. <laughs> so any raccoon enthusiasts out there yeah raccoon enthusiasts shoot me a message i need to know (laughs) 
so the next victim is Melanie Dawn Brown, who was found shot to death in her apartment's basement at around 4 p.m. on December 8th, 2004. Her apartment was located in the 400th block of Ogilvy Street. Melanie is on the e-panel list and her murder still remains unsolved today. Jesus, okay. And that's the only information that we know about it. Oh, okay. I know you're going to be shocked, but there's also very little information about our next victim. No. Her name is Mary Madeline George. She okay. is an indigenous woman. Okay. Uh, she went missing on July 24th, 2005 at around 6 p.m. Mary was walking to a clinic located within the Spruceland Mall on Ospica Boulevard in Prince George. Her family told police Mary suffered from both amnesia and depression. Well, okay. Which I found that interesting because, like, you don't really meet people every day who suffer from amnesia. Oh, like, did she have some type of, like, head injury or? I don't know. That's all that, like, is stated. But they, you know, her family thinks that may have contributed to her disappearance because obviously if she was, like, walking and suddenly had some sort of bout of amnesia. Right. But Mary's never been found. She, I mean, she was also hitchhiking when she was, well, she was walking along the road. But some, some witnesses say that they saw her, like, attempting to hitchhike. Okay. So, I mean, it's also possible that the wrong person picked her up, you know? Right. Yeah. The next victim is another indigenous woman who is also on the e-panelist. Tamara Lynn Chipman was last seen in Prince Rupert on September 21st, 2005. It was reported by witnesses that Tamara was hitchhiking in an area known as Industrial Park. Okay. It is believed Tamara was attempting to hitchhike home to Thornhill, British Columbia, because the following day on September 22nd, she was due to appear in court to address assault charges. When Tamara didn't return home, her father, Tom Chipman, reported her missing. Okay. So volunteers from her home community, which is Morristown First Nation, organized a large search party and searched between Terrence and Prince Rupert, but didn't find anything. Okay. According to a CBC interview with Tamara's aunt, Gladys Raddick, Tamara's family is unaware of any searches conducted by the police. She claims the police paid the case very little attention because of Tamara's record and that they believed that Tamara was a drug addict and that she was involved in sex work, which her family denies that either of those things are true. Okay. It's been suggested that Tamara may have voluntarily disappeared in order to avoid her assault charges. However, her family maintains that Tamara never would have left her two and a half year old son behind right. and also claim that her bank accounts have remained untouched since she disappeared. Okay. And her um, body's never been found. And No. Okay. According to Tamara's aunt, the family hasn't heard anything from the EPANA task force at all, although Tamara is, is listed on it. Right which is odd because you would think they would at least call to ask some questions. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They didn't even do that. Like initially, like when they, according to her aunt, no, like wow. no one in the family has heard from the huh. task force at all. Okay. That's weird. Tamara's aunt said, quote, it's not high on their priority list. They could be doing their own search parties. There's no support out there for my family. There's gotta be, there's gotta be a reason why some of these, I mean, they're on the panel, you know, she's on the panel, but why some are more, I mean, I guess it has to do with, 
their background or whatever. And like they said, I mean, I'm sure that's a possibility, but. Well, the um, interesting thing about the e-panelists is one of the criteria to be involved on it is that the victim had to be involved in some sort of like high risk, what they call a high risk lifestyle, which I don't like that term, but that's like one of their criteria. So it's interesting because you hear of some of these, the people on the ePANA list, they have great things to say about the investigators that are investigating it. But then you hear of stuff like this where they haven't even been contacted. And normally I would be like, well, maybe it is because like of they think she, you know, was in sex, involved in sex work and, and drugs. But clearly, if that's a criteria to be on the list, then like yeah, they-, they all have that. So... Right, right, exactly. It's, it shouldn't be a, a reason not to investigate. It's one of the criteria to get on the stats force. So, well, they also they consider, which I find interesting. I mean, don't be me wrong, like hitchhiking is a dangerous activity, but they even consider people who frequently hitchhike to be living a high risk lifestyle. So, some of the people on the list, they're not known to be like involved with drugs or, or sex work, but they like just because they hitchhike so frequently, like they met that criteria. Gotcha. Okay. Odd. Of Tamara, Gladys said, quote, she was the humor, the laughter behind all of us when we were all at home for family gatherings. Since Tamara's disappearance, Gladys co-founded Walk for Justice, an organization which is dedicated to raising awareness about all of the missing and murdered Indigenous women across Canada. Tamara's family, like many other families, at this time they were still calling for a national inquiry into the Highway of Tears. So we've heard that before. Um, Just spoiler alert, there there does end up being one. Okay. (laughs) Eventually, but this was at a time, obviously, when that hadn't happened yet. Right. I think we talked about the last time, like, why did it take so long to... Yeah. For this to come to light, but... Well, we'll find out that the government, which I'll talk about it at the end, but of the next episode, but the government did some shady shit involving this. Oh, really? Like, real shady shit. Uh, All right. (laughs) Our next victim is 20-year-old Candice Marie Kalmakoff, who was a nursing student at the College of New Caledonia. On New Year's Eve of 2006, Candice went with a friend to Iron Horse Pub. So I Googled this pub because I was like, man, that's a cool-ass name for a pub. And I kind of wanted to see, like, is it still around? A biker it, bar pub. <laughs> no, it is still around. It does sound like it would be like a biker bar, but yeah, if, if Horse, it's yeah. the same one, which I think it is because it's in the same, like, area... Right. The pub is like beautiful, it has this like really pretty backyard. It overlooks like the mountains. Hmm, okay. So just after midnight, Candace and her friend left the pub to go home with an acquaintance that they had ran into at, at the pub. The acquaintance was Vernon Kyle Wilson. The two friends went to Wilson's house and continued drinking, continued partying until finally Candace's friend was tired and, and went to leave. At that point, Candace and Wilson went into his bedroom and began making out or snogging for you Brits. Oh God. <laughs> what do you, what do they, I wonder what they call it in Canada. Do you think they say making out? I don't know. Or like even in Ireland and Australia, like what do you all call, what do you guys call it over there? It's in snogging. England, they call it snogging. Snogging. Yes, I know. So can you guys, I need you guys to message me and let me know, like, what do they call it in Ireland or like Australia or Canada? Like, is it just making out? Like, what do you all, what do you all call it? What's, what's your, what's your slang? <laughs> what's the lingo? What's a lingo? So while they were making out, Candace pulled away from Wilson. And this, for some reason, completely enraged him. Okay. So in response, Wilson grabbed her by the throat, threw her on the bed, and began brutally beating and choking her just because she pulled away from the kiss. Nice guy. When Candace finally stopped struggling, Wilson went outside and smoked some weed. After smoking, he returned to his bedroom and watched violent pornography 
and then raped Candace's dead body. Wow. Okay. All because she literally pulled away from a kiss. Right. Like, what the fuck? It's like insane. Yeah. Like, are you are you that insecure? Your fragile ego cannot handle somebody literally pulling away from a kiss. She didn't. It's not like she was like ill. She literally maybe she just like was tired and wanted to go home. Like maybe it, it had nothing to do with like not even liking you. Maybe you just had a little bit of bad breath and she wasn't into it. <laughs> well, clearly uh, he uh, chose to handle that situation uh, in that manner. Yeah, like a fucking little shit. Yeah, well. The next day on which was New Year's Day. Wilson threw away the bloody sheets into a dumpster. He then went to the store and bought a large plastic tote and placed Candace's body inside. He then dragged that tote into the alleyway and attempted to burn the body in the tote. However, was unsuccessful, which don't get me wrong. I've never tried to burn a body at all. It's very difficult. <laughs> okay. I was going to ask that because I've obviously heard in other cases of people doing it, but like, obviously since he was unsuccessful, I'm like, well, it must not be like as easy as you would think it is. Yeah, no, it's very, very hard to uh, burn a body in a panic because he couldn't burn the body. He called his stepfather who told him to turn himself into police. So at that point, Wilson contacted the police and led them to Candace's body at around 8 p.m. that evening. Wow. What would you do if I called you and I was like, hey, I murdered somebody. What do I do? Exact same thing. You'd be like, go to the popo. I mean, that's what I would do, too, as a parent. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) sorry, can't help you. Speeding ticket. uh, I can work. You know, I can do something. But murder somebody. Yeah, you're on your own. Well, you got (laughs) to answer for your actions, my friend. Got to. All right. That's it. Vernon Wilson was only 19 at the time of the murder. He was charged with manslaughter and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 13 years. Yeah. Some odd statutes up there, odd guidelines up there in Canada, but he was sentenced in 2007. So he was up for parole in 2020. I tried to find the outcome of his parole hearing, but I couldn't find anything about it. So it's possible that he's out there walking the streets of Canada. Okay. So um, if you live in that area, watch who you kiss. Because this guy could be out there and he's fucking crazy, clearly. Our next victim is 14-year-old Ayla Katerina Sarek Auger. Ayla was the youngest of six children and was part of the Clately Tene First Nations. Ayla was very close to her mother, Audrey, and her siblings. On February 2nd, 2006, Ayla, her sister Kyla, and their brother Tim all went to the Pine Center Mall in Prince George. While at the mall, the siblings ran into a group of their friends who all invited them out drinking that evening. Both Kyla and Ayla agreed to join, and Tim declined and returned home. At some point within the night, Kyla and Ayla got separated, although it's unclear how. I tried to find information on it, but It's not really out there. So somehow they got separated. Okay. The next morning on February 3rd, Kyla returned home expecting to find Ayla, but Ayla wasn't there. When Ayla still hadn't returned home by the following morning, Audrey, Ayla's mom, went to the police. Unfortunately, the police did not initially take Ayla's disappearance seriously. They told Audrey, her mom, to wait 78 hours before filing a report in case she came home. Wow. Okay. So an official missing persons report was not filed until February 6th, which is four days after Ayla was last seen by her sister. Unreal. Four days later, on February 10th, 2006, a man was driving along Highway 16 and had pulled over. He discovered a nude body 
laying in the ditch alongside the road near Tabor Mountain on the outskirts of Prince George. The body was later determined to be Ayla, as she had been found wearing a necklace, which Audrey had been able to identify as one she had given to her. The necklace was only the only item recovered with Ayla. So her clothes weren't even like with her. Right. Okay. Following an autopsy, police discovered that Ayla's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Through their investigation, police discovered that after getting separated from her sister, Ayla had gone to a friend's house. She had asked the friend's mother to drive her home, but the mother refused. Ayla didn't want to ask her mom for a ride so because it was so late. So she decided to walk home instead. So don't be an asshole. If a young girl is at your house and needs a fucking ride, can you just get your ass up and give her a ride? Yeah, just take her home. Like, I don't <laughs> care what you have going on. You're, you're not a 14-year-old girl walk, walk alone late at night mm, home. Little night, yeah. When you Because you just are too lazy. to. I don't even care what you had going on. Honestly, there's no excuse. Like, if one of my daughter's friends was, were here, I don't care if it was two in the morning, if she was like, I really need a ride home, I'd be like, I got you. This is kind of annoying, but like, whatever. Or spend a night and I'll take you in the morning. Yeah, one or the other. Yeah, something. Yeah, right. Yeah, this, I mean, I'm not like, clearly it's not the mom's fault that she got killed. No, no but, but, but I'm sorry, that's ride, shitty. She'd probably be alive. Yeah, that's shitty. Like, she asked you for a ride and you just were like, no, walk home by. Right. In the middle of the night. Like, crazy police collected all of the surveillance footage they could find from the area and found ayla on the footage twice the videos showed ayla walking north on the 2100 block of kimsey street she had passed a gas station called Savon foods gas bar at approximately 1 a.m heading in the direction of her home audrey ayla's mom through talking to witnesses herself discovered that Ayla was last seen getting into a black van, although that sighting has never been confirmed by police. Unfortunately, Ayla's murder remains unsolved to this day, and her case has been added to the e-panelist. Okay. Ayla's mother, Audrey, never gave up hope that her daughter's murderer would be found. Every year following Ayla's death, Audrey walked down Highway 16 in order to raise awareness for her daughter's case. Sadly, on March 5th, 2013, seven years after Ayla's death, Audrey was killed in a vehicle accident on Highway 16. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Some bad juju on that road. Bad juju. She never got to witness her daughter's killer be brought to justice. Right. It's just crazy that she ended up dying on the same road that her daughter died on. I don't know, like, I don't necessarily believe in coincidences, but <laughs> this is very, I'm, you know. I'm, I'm like very into like energies and stuff like that. And I 100% believe that I don't know if you want to call it haunted or like, however you want to say it. But this shit, the Highway 16, like, there's some some sort of bad juju going on. Tony, there's yeah, like it a- needs like a massive spiritual cleansing. <laughs> An exorcism of the road. <laughs> yeah, seriously. The next victim is 16-year-old Stephanie Joy Donnelly. On the evening of November 23, 2006, police received a 911 call of a domestic disturbance and arrived at the Donnelly home to find Stephanie stabbed to death. She had been stabbed three times in the heart and her throat had been slashed. Her father, Blair Evan Donnelly, was taken into custody for the murder. It was determined that Blair had a mental break and believed he had been killing his wife, who he believed an angel from heaven had been telling him to kill. Okay. Blair worked as an electrician, but was highly religious and was trained as a pastor and had actually helped to start his own church in Ontario. So in January of 2008, Blair was found not guilty of Stephanie's murder by reason of mental disorder, but was placed in a state mental institution. 
Okay. So I don't know what exactly he got diagnosed with. It's not public record, but you know, I'm assuming he had, you know, schizophrenia or, you know, something like that because he was like hallucinating and stuff. Right. A year later in February of 2009, Blair was granted unsupervised community visits where he could leave the hospital for up to 28 days. What? Yeah. Unsupervised. Okay. Eight months later in October of 2009, Blair had another mental episode and stabbed a friend while out on one of these community visits. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the friend survived the attack, but Blair was held criminally responsible for that stabbing. His unsupervised community visits were revoked. No. no. <laughs> Shocker. And now he is able to have escorted community visits if and when the hospital's director signs off on it. Okay. Yeah. So I thought he was held criminally responsible for that one, but didn't get anything more. I mean, I think he still is in like the mental institution because he's like he's mentally ill. But I don't know like what the outcome of the criminally I don't know what they mean by held him criminally responsible. Like maybe he just got like a longer sentence in the mental hospital. Like I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know. Our next victim, there is very little information about her name's Beverly Warbrick. And all we know is that she went missing from the 2100 block of Oak Street in Prince George in June of 2007. Okay. That's it. That's it. That's it. Okay. No information, nothing, just missing. I couldn't even find a picture of her. So I can't even tell you like what she looks like. Wow. Our next victim is also a missing person. Her name is Bonnie Marie Joseph. She was 32 years old at the time of her disappearance. Bonnie is an indigenous woman. She's a part of the Yikuche First Nation. Okay. Um, Bonnie was a mother of five and had recently had her children taken away due to a drug addiction. However, in 2007, Bonnie was working to set her life back on track. She was staying off drugs and she was working hard to regain custody of her kids. Bonnie had been attending regular court hearings and visitations, although she did not have a vehicle. So on September 9th, 2007, Bonnie had one of her final court dates and was last seen by her cousin, Joanne, attempting to hitchhike from her hometown of Vanderhoof to Prince George because that's where the court hearing was going to be held and she didn't have a ride there. Right. Bonnie never showed up to court. And up until that point, she had never missed a hearing or a visitation appointment at all. Right. After not hearing from Bonnie for nearly three months, Bonnie's aunt, Rose Joseph, reported her missing to the RCMP in December of 2007. So they didn't even get a missing persons report until two, three um, until three months after she had actually disappeared. Yeah, Lord, okay. Which that sucks because that's like a long time. Yep. According to one of Bonnie's cousins, Bonnie's wallet was found near a lake by a passerby and was turned into the RCMP in between the time that Bonnie was last seen and when she was reported missing. So basically, supposedly somebody found Bonnie's wallet by a lake and being like a good citizen was like, oh, I'll just give this to the police so they can like find who it belongs to. But mm-hmm. the police didn't connect it with that she was missing because she hadn't been reported missing yet. Good. Right. OK. She claims that in the wallet, Bonnie's ID and an uncashed check were found. The cousin also claims that this information was told to Bonnie's sister by the RCMP. And it was told to Bonnie's sister, Sharon a year after Bonnie was reported missing. Although Bonnie's case does match the required criteria to be included on the e-panel list, her case has not been included on it. (laughs) And her family doesn't know why. Our next case actually involves two victims who were both only 19. Their names are Brittany Geese and Garrett McComb. These two were dating and they were both heavily involved in gangs within the area of Prince George. 
On October 7, 2008, police were called to the couple's home located on Weber Crescent and found the couple shot to death. No other information has been released publicly. All okay. police will say is that they believe the murder was related to their gang activity and no person has yet been charged with their murder. So it's still unsolved. Okay. And that's it. Hmm. All right. But they lived off of Highway 60. So the next case is interesting because I personally believe that it could be tied to one of the cases we just talked about. Okay. And I just think this from like literally researching it, I was like, wait a minute. Like I was literally researching it and I was like, did I already write this one? Because they're so similar. Oh, and I was okay. like, this could be like the same killer. Right. Okay. So our next victim is 35-year-old Jill Stacy Stuchenko. In October of 2009, Jill's body was discovered in a gravel pit on the outskirts of Prince George. After an autopsy, it was determined that Jill had died from blunt force trauma to the head. Through their investigation, the police determined that Jill frequently engaged in sex work and may have been killed while meeting a client. A year later, on November 27, 2010, a 20-year-old man named Cody Lebikoff, Legbikoff, doesn't matter. He's a piece of shit. Okay. He was arrested for Jill's murder and the murder of three other women. Really? Some of these women are included on Highway of Tears victims. So I will talk more about how Cody was caught in all of that in a bit. Okay. But he's a piece of shit and he's an idiot. All right. However, I will say that all of his victims were killed with blunt force trauma to the head. So okay. what unsolved case does that remind you of? Ayla, right. Yeah. The third, she was what, 13 or 14, right? Yeah. So, yeah. and the interesting thing is that. When I was first reading this, I was like, oh, well, most of his victims are like in their 30s and they're like um, sex workers and stuff. But then his one of his last victims was like 14. And I was like, I really think that he killed Ayla. Didn't she get into a black van or then wasn't there like a report? Yeah. You ever own a black van or? Well, the the vehicle he was caught in is a truck. Oh, okay. But I mean, I don't know if like he had access to a van like. Right, right, right. I mean, call that a lead. (laughs) so the next victim we're going to talk more about cody in a a second okay so the next because i want to go in chronological order okay so the next victim is 16 year old emily rose mclean emily was indigenous and was nisga first nations on april 10th 2010 a passerby saw emily's body floating in the prince rupert harbor through an autopsy police discovered that emily's cause of death was drowning through their investigation it was determined that emily had been hanging out with some acquaintances the night prior to her death but no further details have been released by police Hmm. they have not publicly classified emily's death as a homicide but they do admit that they have not ruled out foul play so basically she was found drowned but they don't know that they think maybe somebody could have contributed to that or it could have been an accident but okay right it's going to require further investigation to figure it out Right. So the next victim is 23-year-old Natasha Lynn Montgomery. She was last heard from on October 26, 2010, when she called her parents to check in. After not hearing from Natasha for some time, her parents reported her missing. Three months later, serial killer Cody Legbikoff, that's the one we just talked about, who he also had killed Stuchenko, he was arrested for Natasha's murder. Her body was never found, but when Cody was caught, Natasha's DNA was found on his hoodie, shorts, an axe, and throughout his apartment. Axe? Yeah. Okay. So our next victim is Cody's third victim, 35-year-old Cynthia Francis Moss. 
Cynthia was last seen on September 10th, 2010 in Prince George. She was reported missing by family members on September 23rd after they hadn't heard from her in nearly two weeks. Cynthia was also known to engage in sex work. So on October 9th, RCMP officer Kent McNeil was walking in LC Gun Park and discovered Cynthia's body. At the time of her discovery, she was almost completely skeletonized and her head was detached from her neck. Her pants were also found around her ankles. Following an autopsy, it was determined that she too had died from blunt force trauma and penetrating wounds to the chest. Okay. The final victim of Cody's was 15-year-old Lauren Don Leslie. And this was the murder that got him caught. Yeah. So on November 27, 2010, Cody met Lauren on a popular Canadian dating app called Nexopia. Okay. So I assume that's their version of like Bumble or whatever. Right. Okay. Cody's screen name was One Country Boy. Okay. Ill. Yeah. Like already ill. Like if I, I've never even been on a dating app, but if I were to be on the dating app and I were to scroll left or right or whatever, and it was one country boy, I would be like, nope, no, that's a big no for me, dog. All right. <laughs> Lauren was considerably younger than his previous victims, but around the same age as Ayla. Ayla right, yeah. Lauren was also legally blind. She was completely blind in one eye and only had 50% vision in the other eye. The night of the murder, after talking online to Cody, he picked her up. At around 9.45 p.m. that night, a rookie RCMP officer, Aaron Keller, which this cop, kudos to you. Like, he was a rookie, but he just, like, followed his gut, and I give him props. So he saw Cody pull his truck onto British Columbia Highway 27 from a remote logging road. He noticed that Cody was speeding and pulled the truck over, but he was immediately suspicious because, A, what were you doing on that remote logging road at like 10 o'clock at night? You know, it's like there's no lights out there. Like there's no reason for you to be there like late at night. Right. It's not like there are houses off of it. Right. Also, it was the middle of November, so it's freezing. Like, it's not like you're just out there to take, like, a nice country walk or something. (laughs) All right. So, at the time, Keller actually suspected that Cody had been illegally poaching animals. Okay. When he pulled him over, that was, like, what he thought he was doing. So, Keller called for backup, and once a second officer arrived, they began searching Cody's vehicle for evidence of poaching. Right. However, the officers were not prepared for what they were actually going to find. Oh, boy. They discovered a multi-tool and a wrench covered in blood. They also found a monkey-shaped backpack, and inside of the backpack was 15-year-old Lauren's children's hospital card. (laughs) Also, when Cody stepped out of the vehicle, they noted that he, too, was covered in blood. When asked about what they had found, Cody claims that he had indeed been poaching animals, but instead of using a gun, he used tools to beat the deer to death. (laughs) Okay. That's what he told the police. Yeah, Yeah, well, he's an idiot. Yeah, he was like, oh, oh, no, that wrench... I just, it's the craziest story. I I came upon this deer and decided, you know, I wanted to kill it. And I just, instead of shooting it like a normal hunter, I just decided it'd be real fun to just beat it to death with a wrench. A wrench, yeah. Like that makes sense. Yeah. Like, and also, even if that really was the case, like you're still fucked up. Like, what? Yeah. Like, there's something wrong with you that if you really did that, that's fucked up. That's like animal abuse. It's not like you're killing it just to hunt. Like, you're like being a fucking psycho. Right. Exactly. When asked why he would do such a thing, Cody replied, quote, I'm a redneck. That's what we do for fun. Once again, that one country boy thing. This is why don't never, never fuck with rednecks. Just don't <laughs> just swipe. What? Which I don't know which way you swipe to say no, but swipe the no way. Just delete the app. <laughs> yeah. If you see a redneck on there, bye. It's not cute. 
So that lie clearly did not fool police. Right. They're like, sure. Right, so yeah. they were also not fooled because there was no deer carcass located in the truck. So why would you just beat this deer to death and then leave the carcass and be like, hey, bye. Yeah, exactly. Getting an uneasy feeling from Cody, the officers decided to arrest him under the Canadian Wildlife Act because he'd admitted to animal abuse, A, and poaching. And poaching, right. And so they requested that a conservation officer with tracking skills come out to search the area and see if they could find a deer carcass to, you know, corroborate his story. Once the conservation officer arrived, he tracked the truck's tracks back down to the logging road, and then he found where it had been parked. Then he located Cody's footprints in the snow and followed them to the remains of Lauren. He had beaten her to death with the wrench. Shocking. After Cody's arrest, he was linked by a DNA to the murders of Jill Stuchenko, Cynthia Francis Moss, and Natasha Lynn Montgomery. So he had killed those three people, but hadn't been linked to it until now. Right, okay. At the trial, Cody pled not guilty to all four counts of first-degree murder. (laughs) Okay. He testified that he had been involved in three of the four deaths, but had not been the one to commit the actual murders. He claimed it was three drug dealers who had actually committed the murders, but he was too scared to name them and would only refer to them in court as X, Y, and Z. Okay, we believe you. No one was buying it. No, I'm sure. On September 11th of 2014, Cody was found guilty on all four counts and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. He was also added to the National Sex Offenders Registry because of all the sexual assaults committed in the commission of his crimes. Mm-hmm. British Columbia Supreme Court Justice Glenn Parrett said of Cody, quote, he lacks any shred of empathy or remorse. He should never be allowed to walk among us again. I would agree. So we're going to stop here for this episode. But okay. the last part of our Highway of Tears coverage will be out on Wednesday. So keep an eye out for that. You, you don't have to wait long. It's only a couple of days. <laughs> so we're going to end with our two questions. All right. Okay, so the first one is from Alicia. What is the most interesting case you've looked into so far? So I'll let you answer and then I'll say which one I thought was the most interesting. Oh, one that we've already covered? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by this one that we're doing right now, only because of the length of time that has been going on and the, the fact that there's still cases unsolved. And I want to get to the end so I know, like, so we can talk about that task force that, you know, may or may not be doing everything they can be doing. So I would say, I would say this one so far has been, and I have to say that one that we covered back in um, the, the Australian one with the, uh, the family. Oh, the Trump family. The, the Trump family. That was, that was a little freaky too. So I was like, that, yeah, one that had, one's, that one's a mystery. Yeah. So um, I would say those two, but this one right now that we're covering is uh, so far been, you know, just because there's so many unanswered questions that may or may not get answered in the, in the last episode, but I'm sure they won't be because it's still an ongoing investigation. But you so are correct. That, Spoiler yeah. alert. Well, we've already discussed that. So yeah, I would say th- those two, this one and and the uh, Trout family. Uh, I think my favorite so far has been the Elise Matsunaga one. And I yeah. think the reason why is because, well, A, I found that medical examiner to be like <laughs> the most interesting, like yeah, he was such a quite a character. Yeah. But also, I just find it interesting because it's kind of one of those open-ended cases where obviously you know who did it, but it's like one of those where you're like, you really could see it being one of two ways. Like either she's just a cold-blooded killer who was out for revenge or like she was an abused woman who like snapped. Right. So I think that's the part of it that I find interesting is like, we'll never know like what 
the true right. stories. And on top of that, the whole idea of like, did she have an accomplice or not? I thought was interesting, you know, which once again, we'll never know for sure. But, right. you know, I think just because there's a lot of open endedness to it, it was like interesting. Our next question is from mm. Terry with an I. So it's funny because last week, I don't know if you remember, but we had Tony with an eye. Tony with an eye. And And now now it's Terry with an eye. So Terry's question is for me. So. Oh, gosh. So you don't even have to answer. Okay, then I'll sit here quietly. (laughs) So uh, Terry asked, how did you end up in California from Florida? (laughs) He's like, long story. No, it's not that long. But I actually lived in a lot of places because I obviously moved out when I was 18 and I like went to college and all that. So um, I like have lived all throughout Florida. I lived in Warner Robins, Georgia for a little bit. I lived in right outside of like Dallas, Texas for a little bit. And then I actually lived in Las Vegas for a little bit, which is funny because Terry told me in her email that she lives in Nevada, actually. So Terry, oh I, I too lived in Nevada for a minute, but I lived in Las Vegas. And then that's where I met my husband because he was in the Air Force at the time and he was stationed there. So I met him in Las Vegas. And then he is originally from California, where I live now. So once he got out of the military, we decided to move back to his hometown. So that's how I got to California. Told you I was going to say here quietly. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's exactly what happened. So thank you, Terry, for that question. I like being the one to answer. And Uh, you're such a girl. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, ladies. Just kidding. (laughs) All right. So we'll see you in a couple of days. Yeah. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy it. Please send us more questions. Like I said, we have that new form in in the link in our bio on Instagram, or you can just email them to us at can'tmakethisshituppod.com. Either one is fine. Also, please, 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 even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, if you could go on and write us a review, it's really helpful because we get more listeners that way, the more reviews that go in. So if you could just hop on there and just write us a little something, something, that'd be great. I got a question. If they're not listening to us, how are they going to review us? No, I said if they're not. (laughs) No, I said even if you don't listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, Oh, okay, okay. Because, right, you I know, see. some people listen on Spotify and like all sorts okay, of stuff. Okay. Sorry, sorry. I had an old but, man. Mind. Yeah. Also, those who aren't listening, if you could leave a review, that'd be <laughs> great too. <laughs> yeah, just review us. You don't know what we're doing, but hey, sorry. Right. I had an old man moment. Sorry. I know you're, you're all, there's only one podcast to now. <laughs> it's all new to me. All right. Well, until next time. Bye. Bye.